Welcome back. Welcome to Decision Space, the only show to take place right here in the space between the turns in your favorite games. I'm Jake Friedman. And I'm Brendan Hansen. And this is the podcast about decisions in games. And today we are talking about Sushi Go, a super light, super fun, super silly little drafting game. I think it'll be a great discussion. We'll get to tell you about drafting generally, our thoughts on that, and of course, dive deep into the decisions uh, within this light gateway game. Um, Brendan, how are you doing today? Before we go any further, I need to know. I'm doing really well, Jake. Thank you. I feel like it's so funny because about a year ago, we were talking, uh, could we actually... can we cover Splendor on the show? Does that have the decisional richness to pull a full episode? And now I feel like we've arrived at like the lightest game we've ever covered. And there were no worries that we were going to be able to do a full episode on Sushi Go. So it's just fun seeing where we've ended up. Totally. How are you doing? I'm doing really good. Thanks. And hopefully we're not, you know, hyping ourselves up too quick before we crash and burn throughout <laughs> this recording. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 we're gonna do card by card analysis like we did in the Fox in the Forest episode. It's gonna be great. I think it's gonna awesome. be a really good episode. All right, well, let's get these housekeeping things out of the way and then we can get right into our discussion. Um, for our pre planners, you should know that next week on this very podcast, we will be covering Downforce, a racing and betting game by Restoration Games. Um, I think that's gonna be a really interesting discussion. Uh, it, just a, as a little teaser, it's a game that I used to own, have moved on from, but recently have been playing on Board Game Arena and enjoying quite a bit. So I have thoughts. Let's see. Before we do our main deep dive episode, Brendan, I wanted to, if it's okay with you, share a what's on my mind um, because I had a really interesting recent play of Azul Queen's Garden, the new game in the Azul line. Is that all right if I kind of go yeah, over that real quick? I'd love to hear about it. I know this is one that you've been anticipating for a while. The fourth Azul game. Exactly. And, you know, we've sort of gone back and forth on this what's on the mind segment. Um, so if you're not interested in this, please go ahead and click the timestamp uh, and, and you can just jump right ahead to our main discussion, which will be the same as it always is. But if you are interested in Azul Queen's Garden as I was, stick around and, and I'll kind of give you a brief overview of this game and, and my experience with it. I wanted, I think it's worth covering because uh, it was one of the ones we featured on our kind of decision spaces we're looking forward to exploring or something. I know we've mentioned on this podcast before and I finally got a chance to play my very own copy of it. And it was interesting. <laughs> so what you need to know about Azul Queen's Garden is it's the fourth game in the Azul line. And it is like, if you just played Azul and then went to Queen's Garden right after that, like you would really not see any shared DNA at all, except for the fact that you have like these chunky tiles and and they look kind of similar aesthetically. Um, But really the through thread, I think, from Azul to Azul Queen's Garden has been pretty much severed completely. Mm. Um, there, there's some more in common with uh, Summer Pavilion, the most recent game. I can see some kind of uh, design threads there, but really this game is its own beast entirely. And let me tell you, it is like a heavy game, like a borderline medium, medium heavy game, uh, which was pretty surprising to me. Uh, to have this game in the Azul line that is like actually just straight up kind of a bear to teach. <laughs> yeah. So I played this game on at a game night on Wednesday and we played it with three other players uh, kind of wor- working through everyone's first play together. Uh, and while we were playing one round of Azul's Queen Garden, there was another table of three players and they finished a game of Dune Imperium and then they finished a game of Rumble Nation before we finished our four-player play of Azul Queen's Garden. Wow. Do you think it would always play that long, or was it just onboarding and learning it? So it took us about two hours. It was a really fast game of Dune Imperium. We are kind of like, what the heck? How are you guys already done? Um, so it took us two hours. So that maybe is like overstating the case with those examples, but that is a true story. We were like, wow, yeah. we're still playing this Azul game, and they're already wrapping up these two other games. Um, I think it would not necessarily be that long, but there are some things uh, in Azul Queen's Garden that just are going to make it more... AP inducing and just mm-hmm. thinkier than other Azul games. 
namely that kind of the big fundamental difference here is that in Azul's Queen's Garden, unlike in Azul, where you get all the available tiles at once at the start of the round, and then it's diminishing and diminishing and diminishing, in Azul's Queen's Garden, they're kind of parceled out to you. Sort of every mm. time somebody takes tiles off of sort of the main offering, like the, that offering gets moved over and four new tiles come out. So it's very like, and then if, and and so on like a, the coaster, sort of like in Azul, you'll bring out one new coaster with four new tiles. Uh, and then once all of the four tiles on the coaster, which is called like a garden extension is gone, then you'll like flip over that garden extension and that becomes something you can take onto your board as well. So it's mm-hmm. very likely in Azul Queen's Garden uh, that the situation will just change right before your turn, making it like much more difficult to pre-plan what you want to do um, than in, in other Azul games. And you'll just be confronted with new information. It's just going to take you some time to think through it. On top of that, you're not just looking at colors, you're looking at colors and patterns. So it just takes some time to even do like the simple recognition. So you're taking all of one color, just like in Azul, or you're taking all of one pattern. Um, but you can't take two of the same tile. So just like if, if there's like 10 tiles out there uh, or more, which is often the case in a four player game, it kind of takes a second where you're just like trying to like, wait, what is even available for me mm. to take? And all that just takes a lot more time. All that said, I had a blast playing the game. It's a game I want to play again. Uh, but I just felt like it's worth mentioning because I think if you're somebody who's like, I don't like Azul. Like, I wouldn't overlook this game just because of that, because it's so different. It really feels like a game that is like Azul for heavy gamers. Like, I think if you're a heavy gamer, you really have a good shot at liking this game. And the flip side of the coin, if you're like a family uh, that's like loves Azul as like a family game that you can play with your family, I would like steer, steer clear of this. It's almost like the opposite of what your expectation might be based on the word Azul on the box. So in terms of the decision space of Azul, Jake, I feel like in original Azul, a lot of the interesting decisions lay in the drafting itself and the spatial puzzle in your board is less interesting. Do you think that that's true of Queen's Garden or is it a bit more evenly balanced? Like what what's that puzzle look like? That's a great question. I think it's really insightful because it's almost flipped on its head. Like okay. the, the game is puzzling out your board because basically you'll score groups of three or more of the same tile type. So you'll be scoring like all your light green tiles as long as you have three or more. Mm. Um, And then, but the exact same with the pattern. So you're matching, you're trying to get colors in like a conjoined area, but then you want like the pattern on those colors to be matching up with other pattern sets throughout the board. Yeah, yeah. Almost like in Cascadia where you're trying to, uh, both interact with the landscape types to create those sections and create these like uh, different patterns with the uh, animal tiles Interesting. or the animal things. So really, truly this game reminded me of like a mix between like the puzzle in Cascadia of, of tile placement and something like Castles of Burgundy, where you're trying to drop things off a common supply. Um, so you're like taking... Yeah, and it literally has, just like in Castle of Burgundy, you have like a staging area where you can, on your turn, you can take stuff or you could play stuff to your board. Um, this, which this sounds t- like an amazing combination, but I'm just like not 100% sold on sure. that mashup despite loving both those games. I wonder if the playtime gets down to closer to an hour with a little bit more practice, if it might be something that could hit the table more often for you. Also, Jake, really quickly, a lot of what you're saying reminds me of Palaces of Carrera, another Michael Kiesling game with the the way that information and options are being slowly doled out into the drafting display. It's just kind of interesting. Yeah, I, I didn't thought about that. Uh, so that, that wasn't like the comparison that immediately came to mind. I really think an even more apt comparison is Castles of Tuscany crossed mm. with uh, Cascadia, if anyone's played that. But no. Um, yeah, nobody's played. Nobody's played. Tuscany. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but Castle of Burgundy kind of gives you a pretty close approximation too. So I think this is, you know, if, if you like heavier games, um, I think this one is absolutely worth a look, worth your time. It's one I'm really excited to play more. I think at two players, it's going to really sing. And also mm. that's going to inherently get the playtime down too. And I think it's a game like you and Maya 
what I yeah. know about you, I think would really get into it in a big way. Uh, so I'd be, ex- I, I'd, I'd gladly recommend it to you. It's not a game I would like universally recommend, but I think hearing this discussion, people probably have an idea if, if it might be something to check out. Cool. Well, thanks for talking about it on the show, Jake. No, yeah, it sounds absolutely. really, really interesting. Yeah. Well, suffice it to say, I'm calling it not Azul Queen's Garden from now on. <laughs> not Azul Queen's Garden. I love it. <laughs> Anyway, I hope that you enjoyed that brief What's on My Mind segment on Azul Queen's Garden or skipped over it if you didn't care about that. And let's, Brendan, get right into the feature of this episode where we are going to be talking about Sushi Go designed by the PWH. We're both members of the PWH fan club, headed up by PWH fan club president Paul Solomon. And it was uh, self-published in 2013 and then picked up by... Game right in 2014 plays two to five players. Um, and let's go right into our ratings and slogans. Brendan, can I throw it to you first? Yeah, Sushi Go is a bit like the best conveyor belt sushi I've ever had, Jake. It's straightforward, simple, and totally delightful. Is there better sushi and are there better games? Yeah, definitely. Do I sometimes want to gorge myself on roll after roll and play after play in the comfort of my favorite conveyor belt spot? Or in Sushi Go's decision space? You bet I do. Sushi Go delivers on its premise in a 10 out of 10 manner, but the decisions themselves leave a bit to be desired with a game that at times places a bit too much emphasis on wanton risk-taking for my liking. 8 out of 10. So for me, Sushi Go, absolutely delightful game. I think it is kind of in the upper echelon of gateway games that you can bring out with anyone from hardcore gamers to non-gamers alike and there are scant few games uh, that sort of can sing equally for both groups so that is high praise and i think if you're talking about gateway games to the drafting mechanism then sushi go might be just best in class i love how even though sushi go is so simple it still allows for a wide range of outcomes uh, you could score three points on a turn. I absolutely have done that. Or you could score upwards of 20 plus points in a turn, which I think really kind of like says a lot about how well this game is balanced uh, and and kind of uh, the inherent excitement to it. That said, as you point out, there's just a lot of randomness in this game. It's tough because it's a gateway game. It does what it's trying to do. But like without that complexity, I think it does put limits on sort of how engaging the decision space actually is. So I'm going to match you. I'm going to give this an 8 out of 10 as well. For both of us, an awesome game. Yeah. Also, I just want to clarify really quickly. Jake means rounds, not necessarily turns in scoring 20 or 3 points. Because a 20-point turn in Sushi Go would be out of this world literally not possible but now yeah but you could get nine and that feels wild nine feels amazing i think that's one of the things that we'll probably really dive into too that sushi go does so well is the the variable uh point potential of a given turn is actually a really really interesting puzzle we've talked about games where the difference in terms of the points you're getting for turn are maybe half a point difference and and the game is those half points adding up and in sushi go you're ranging between like zero and and nine and it's just huge in in terms of a game where you might score 40 so that's it makes for exciting moments and jake really quickly i guess when i was doing some research for the show uh i found out that phil walker harding's website actually he has lots of here's these short design notes on all of his games which i thought was really cool um so if you're interested in checking out his website uh I definitely recommend it if you're curious about his designs. I just wanted to highlight that Sushi Go came out of his love of fairy tale and Seven Wonders. He wanted to find a game to design a game that was just inspired by the drafting mechanism there, but do something that was lighter and more uh, that he could play with anyone. You know, Seven Wonders has barriers to play, and I, I don't think Sushi Go really does. Teaching Sushi Go takes all of ten seconds, maybe. So. It's pretty cool hearing them call those games out directly. That's so funny. Like it's, it just speaks to my brain as games. Like I never really got that theme at all. That it's sushi. Like you're passing sushi. Oh yeah, the conveyor game. belt. Yeah, yeah. 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 When you were saying that, like I, I even didn't connect with it when you were saying it in your 
synopsis or whatever you're kind of rating and so i was just like okay yeah sure that, that kind of makes sense but <laughs> that's because i've never actually been to a conveyor belt sushi restaurant that's probably why also yeah. we gotta correct that yeah yeah i mean yeah. I, i've been to a lot of sushi restaurants but just sure. none of that particular type sounds yeah, fun yeah. though yeah all right well with that, let's jump into Brendan's very short rules overview to see if he can actually teach this game in 10 seconds. No pressure. Uh, and then we'll join you back on the other side. Sushi Go is a set collection card drafting game played over the course of three rounds. At the start of each round, players are dealt a hand of cards, then simultaneously each player takes one card from their hand and places it in front of them. They then pass the remaining cards to the player on their left. This process repeats until all the cards dealt in a round are drafted, at which point players tabulate their score for the round and then a new round begins. Sushi Go cards come in a few different types, but typically cards either give a flat point value, like nigiri cards, points for collecting pairs, tempura, or sets of three, sashimi, or might score for having the most in a round, maki rolls, or the most over the course of the game, pudding. Playing Sushi Go well is all about assessing which risks are appropriate to take based on the cards one suspects are in the current card pool, and by looking at all the cards that players have previously played in that round. Sushi Go is a quick, fairly light drafting game, but it's not without its teeth as knowing when to play offensively or defensively by hate drafting cards opponents might need is key to making the right decisions in this simple 15 minute drafting game. So that was probably a bit longer than 10 seconds, but uh. st still very good, very concise rules overview. Uh, and unlike a lot of the games, this really teaches you everything you need to know to dive right in and start collecting and theoretically eating that delicious delicious sushi yeah you got it i want to talk about the, the the decision space and characterize it with you jake what do you what waning decision space yeah yeah i mean it's got to be yeah, right you've less yeah. and less options like in the most literal sense yeah on every turn and you could even go further and say sometimes like in the, from round to round, you have less options with the end game scoring with the pudding cards, which I'm sure we'll we'll talk about specifically. Uh, by the end of the game, it might just make no sense at all for you to take any of those, which even reduces your decisions possible on your turn even further. One thing that I didn't go super in depth on in the rules overview, but I think will be important for this conversation too, is that every time you play, it's not that round one, there's one set of cards that you use, round two, there's another set of cards that you use, and round three, there's a third set. You take the deck, you shuffle the entire deck, and then you deal cards to the players. So there's a lot of variability in terms of when these different types of cards are coming out. So with cards like Tempura, the one that you want pairs, and Sashimi, the one that you want sets of three, knowing what cards have come out in rounds one and two can really impact or the previous rounds can really impact the cards that you might take. So if you have a ton of sashimi that just randomly end up in the hands in round one, all of a sudden sashimi is way, way riskier in rounds two and three and sort of vice versa. If you've only seen a few, three sashimi in the first round, okay, now it's much more likely. So one thing that feels really different to me about Sushi Go than these other games, is it's so much about trying to suss out what the cards in any given round in the hands are going to be. And that really changes the potential value. Because if there's a ton of Maki in a round, the ones that are like, you just want to get the most of these, uh, they suck. You only They're way better to draft in rounds where there's only a few, and you can be the one that drafts those few cards, right? And I think that is one of the things that makes this game so accessible is it's very easy to sort of kind of sum everything down into a points per card thing yeah. right so like for maki and, and we'll we'll talk about all the cards in the game but for maki right you get six points if you have the most of them so if you can get six points off one card that's just insane value if there was maybe only one maki in the whole round or only one maki that had the three maki three. rolls uh whereas if you have to take three cards to earn those six points or more all of a sudden that point per card value is going down significantly. Um, and, and I think that Sushi Go decision space makes that like very clear and parsable in a way that 
a lot of other games and drafting games are fuzzier. And I think one of the huge things that makes it so clear is that people are drafting cards face up, right? Mm. You reveal after you take card, you play it face up in front of you and everybody can see exactly what has come out of the deck uh, where this game could be played with the exact same rule set, but everybody's drafting face down and scoring at the end. And that would create a very different feel of the decision space. Uh, and, and that's mainly in, in regard to like the clarity of it. Yeah. Yeah. It's so interesting because I think that sometimes when we talk about waning decision space games too, Jake, what we usually talk about in sort of trick taking games is the tension around as the decisions wane. And I think that that's definitely here, right? If you're waiting for the third sashimi in your set of three and, and you're waiting to see what's going to happen, that it can be tense. But I think that in general, Sushi Go, for whatever reason, as a waning decision space game, doesn't feel as tense to me as a lot of the other ones. And maybe it's just because of how much information is known by the end. You've seen all of the hands. They've gone around the table. Um, I don't know. Do you get that sense from this game? Or is that just me? Yeah, I don't know that I get a tremendous amount of like, oh, like I'm so anxious. I'm really hoping I get this one specific thing like right at the end. Yeah. Because a lot, and I think that just has to do with like a lot of times, like your last card is going to be almost totally worthless, right? You could get like the chopsticks or like a single Maki roll that's giving you no points. Uh, so it, it can kind of be anticlimactic at the very end in the last one, two, or three cards you get, uh, making it like the actual tense moments are more towards the middle because you yeah. know, like, okay, if I don't get my third sashimi here, it's not happening. Uh, and and so you can kind of like, okay, I have accepted my fate by the time you actually get to the end of the round. Or I also think it's like, there's also this weird punctuated moment of stress a lot. I think that's like the second hand you get dealt has like an outsized impact in a lot of cases. Um, so there's like a lot of drama right there. And I can kind of explain why I think that is as we get into some of the cards in the game. Yeah. Um, but that also makes it like it, it dilutes that like typical sense of stress that a waning decision space has where it just ramps up and up and up as like more and more spots get taken up. You're like, oh, no, what's going to be left for me? Does that make sense? No, totally. I, I guess the other thing about the feel, one mechanic that we don't typically play games with or cover games on the show where it really is emphasized is the importance of memory and Sushi yeah. Go. The core skill of Sushi Go really is in some ways memory because you have a really bit, you can make much more informed decisions if you remember the cards in the hands you've passed, or at least have a sense for certain things. How many sashimi in them? How many Maki did you see? Mostly how many three Maki cards, Maki, oh gosh, how many Maki cards with three Maki printed on them? They come in one, two, or three are there because they have such a potential for impact or tempura and these sorts of things. So, and it's something I feel like it's not huge. You can play the game without doing it. And being able to count cards doesn't win you this game automatically, but it does have a large impact. I think memory has more to do with like from round to round. As you were talking about before, yeah. you know, having a hand that has three sashimi in it in the first round is like pretty risky to take it with your first turn. Even if you're thinking like, okay, I know it's possible that one of these gets back to me, especially if people see it, me drafting it. Because you have no information. Those could be the only three sashimi in the whole hand. Where if you've already played one hand that only had a couple sashimi cards and you get three in your opening hand, like you can feel much more confident that yeah. uh, you'll, you'll be getting dealt some in the other hands of players in the game. Whereas memory, I think, is important and inherently important to drafting games. But I think it is reduced by the face-up drafting. Yeah. Like when you're, uh, I guess my, you know, most experience with drafting is in Magic the Gathering, right? And in that you're taking just like this, you're getting dealt a hand of cards, a pack of cards, essentially. You're picking one, playing it face down, passing the rest around. So in that, you really need to look at your opening hand and think like, which of these cards is likely to come back to me in eight turns and try and like and try and remember that so that when it does get back to you you have a sense of like okay what, what people are 
taking more of or less of, which can kind of give you a sense of what colors are open and closed. And like memory there is so essential. But here, when it get when that first hand gets back to you, you have perfect information, you know, about who took what out of that pack if you just want to look around the table. Uh, so in some senses, I think like while memory is important in drafting always, like from when you're talking about like an individual internal to an individual round, I don't think it matters too much here, which goes into why I think this game works so well as a gateway game. I definitely agree, but I will say one of my nitpicks, and I hate getting into it this early, but is that because Sashimi pays out so much, so highly, right? Over, th- it's 3.3 points per card if you get the whole set. Yeah. It's 10 for three. It puts, uh, sometimes in Sushi Go, I feel playing for second, I can make really safe, uh, I can play fairly risk averse and still get second fairly consistently, but to really win sushi go, I feel like I'm forced to take risks, which then makes emphasizes the importance of memory and knowing when I can afford to just, I have to go for sashimi here. Right. So like, I feel like playing well brings together this memory and risk taking in a way that can be frustrating. Sure. But I hear what you're saying. And I, I, yeah, I don't want to belabor the point. We can, we can probably leave that there. We'll get into it more as we kind of go through the decisions and and kind of the cards and what they open up specifically. But yeah, I think like, so let's, maybe we should jump to this question here where, you know, like what is the game? (laughs) Sushi Go. Like what makes this a game that isn't just, I just take this card that is, worth the most to me right now which is yeah. i mean a way you can play this game right that could be the the safe conservative way of playing i just take something that gives me points and is always going to be good for me every time and that you know you could win games like that potentially salmon nigiri is good those two points are reliable they're useful but yeah you're not even a, even the egg even the egg is one point is a lot better than half of a tempura combo or yeah two yeah. two out of three sashimi yep which are worth nothing no totally so the game here in my mind jake is that only a few cards are the values are known everything else is uncertain and the game of sushi go is navigating that uncertainty based on all the information you already have right all the cards that have been drafted all the cards that could exist um, and trying to navigate what the the right decisions for your seat at the table are and also part of the game is signaling so maybe picking things early because it's open if i pull a three maki early uh slap down that bright red card it sort of says i'm going for this don't overinvest. don't fight me on it because we'll both lose off right and then it's also knowing oh gosh i'm playing with uh playing with krill and joe and they're sashimi happy and they're gonna take all the sashimi cards so i'm not gonna take early risks or knowing okay people are really risk averse in this group of people i'm playing with and i think more than a lot of games we've covered on the show getting a sense for the type of people you're playing sushi go with i think can really be helpful in terms of knowing which risks are going to pay off and which aren't there's certain tables where i'm just like i'm not taking sashimi these people are are wild (laughs) they just take it no matter what that's funny yeah i haven't thought about that kind of actually playing the player element in this game yeah but yeah i mean i think if sure if you could get a like a read on somebody then that's absolutely going to be an advantage to you and I think, like, as I think about it, it's like, I think I definitely have, like, a style, like, a preference. Like, if, What's your if style? This, well, I guess it's more of, like, a like a, a rank, because this, this is, like, how my brain works. Like, I've got my, like, tier list in my head of, like, yep. which things to take. My number one top pick first round always is soy sauce. Like, if a soy sauce mm. is available, I snag it. If a soy sauce isn't available, uh, or sorry, I guess I the three sashimi. I'll take a three-point sashimi first because... Yes. squid nigiri. Yep. The squid nigiri because of the soy... If the next person behind me takes soy sauce. Like the best thing you can get in the game is a soy sauce followed by a squid nigiri. Oh, you mean, you mean wasabi? Oh, oh yeah. I'm sorry. No, that's good. No, yeah, just no. to clarify. Yeah, wasabi, clarify. which doubles the value of the next nigiri you draft. Yeah. So yeah, I yeah. feel like you have to take a squid nigiri first because if the next person takes soy sauce, then they're getting nine points for two cards, which yeah. is like just such a crazy blowout. Like we're talking about how good sashimi is. That's 10 points for three cards and an enormous risk. 
Yep. So, yeah. No, when you get yeah. wasabi and squid nigiri, it feels incredible. It's yeah, like shooting it's, the moon. Yeah. It's insane. Yeah. So you always, I feel like you have to take that. So that's my first pick followed by wasabi to set myself up for that followed by chopsticks. Cause that's like chopsticks early just like leads so much flexibility. Yeah. Um, and then from there, I really want to be taking one of those three things with my first pick, you know, and from there, it, then I think you can start like playing the the actual game of like, okay, what have I seen before? Yeah. Maybe I would take the dumplings if like there haven't been any in the first two rounds or something, you know, I don't know. Yeah. Like now we're now, now we're like actually playing a game, but I think like you can, that would be my first thing. And then I think my other like tell as a player would be like, I just think the tempura is like pretty awful. Like in most situations, I will almost always rather have the the salmon nigiri for like a guaranteed two points than like the potential for 2.5 or zero points. I feel like part of the reason tempura is such a trap too is, okay, your first set of tempura is pretty safe. But when you are usually picking early tempura, there's probably better things you could have been doing, right? Like if you're, okay here's the heuristics of sushi go in in my mind here's how i see the game a lot of people say just try to get about two points every time you pick a card and i think that's a good starting point but the thing about sushi go is if you're picking seven or eight cards in a round right or maybe even more in a higher player count game the point differential between your first few picks and your last few picks is going to be huge because like jake was saying earlier your last few picks you're just trying to not get zero points. You're just trying to not get a meaningless Maki or a chopstick. And in your first few picks, you want those the value of those picks to be at least, you, you'd love them to be three points each. You want the squid nigiri. You want to get be picking sashimi that turns into 3.3 points. Or you want to throw down the wasabi that turns somehow a squid nigiri into a uh, 4.5 point for each card pick. Or the even just salmon and making them each worth... Um, at least each worth four, at least each worth two, stuff like that. It's, I mean, so in my mind, the heuristic of Sushi Go is beginning more on average than what everyone else is getting at that card slot pick is how you have to think about the game. I feel like what you're saying is like, get more points to win the game. That's, that's like, the heuristic, Jake. <laughs> yes, it is. That's the heuristic. Yeah. Basically, what you really want is to have more <laughs> points than all your opponents by the time the game is over. That is yeah. like what we That's what we consider winning a game of Sushi Go around that's here. That's what we consider. I don't know how you play it. Maybe you house ruled it. <laughs> Absolutely. No, and, but, but really, I just think it illustrates that curve, right? Of it's not just about if you're getting only two points on your first pick, you're right. not, you're below curve. You're right. And if you're getting one point on your last pick, you're doing better than everyone else at the table. The trick, though, is what the heck is one pudding going to be worth? Because that's dependent on what, ev- what everyone else has. And how much is this Maki three going to be worth? If I take it as my third pick, is it going to be worth six points because no one else can beat that? Or is it going to be worth zero points because I am forced into other things? I feel like maybe we should just talk card by card. Let's do it. That's what I was going to say. So we've already talked quite a bit about tempura. Um, should I should we like explain what they do here? Just like yeah, remind I think people. Let's do that. Yeah. Remind okay. Yeah. So just, so with tempura, uh, one is worth zero points. Two is worth five points. So you want to get sets of two. Um, yep. And 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 it's like to me, honestly, like I don't want to say like the the value of these is off, but if you think about getting like two for five points or four for ten points, like it's strictly worse. Just points per card than so much else in the game right like three sashimi 10 points four tempura 10 points um so you know and there's going to be like a lot of risk of you know being hung out to dry with just one but the thing that's interesting about sushi go right is like if people are on the same page about the value of tempura and are and then it's like going later and later in the game because you're playing with experienced people then you do want to be the first person to take one right so you want to be just like one turn ahead of everyone else to take it so that you aren't one of the people that's like left out to drive with one um so yeah so just be so so i mean and i think that's what's great about the game too like and and just drafting in general it sort of self-balances in a lot of way right 
if you're picking these cards in, in the sort of first third, it feels of your picks in a round, it feels bad. But I think if you're getting them later in the rounds, they're great. But you hate being in the position where you're sort of like you've taken two tempers and you feel like the right decision is to go for a second set because you can just end up really, really shooting yourself in the foot. Because another thing about Sushi Go that we can get into, I think, as we're talking card by card or maybe a little bit after is the potential to play offensively versus defensively in this game, like when you're actually hate drafting and what that looks like based on because you're always passing the same way. If I see Jake take a tempura, it's easy for me to then just if I'm to his. Oh, shoot. I'm so used to playing it on board game arena. Now, if I'm passing to Jake and Jake picks a tempura, I'm really incentivized to just pick another tempura, especially if no one else has picked a tempura yet, because it's likely that I'm going to get past two of them. And then I've denied Jake that and I've picked up five points. So I think that you leave yourself really exposed in a way that Sashimi, I'm only incentivized to hate draft. It's much harder to be incentivized to hate draft Sashimi because it's not going to have an upside for me typically um, unless I do it really early. Right. So let's just go to Sashimi sashimi next. So for Sashimi, you get 10 points if you collect a set of three, but one or two Sashimi is worth zero. Um, so it's like a huge upside, huge risk. And I think the thing with sashimi and like hate drafting is like the value proposition of like taking a zero point card to neglect the person that's coming after me 10 points is really worth it. Yeah. You know, yeah. it's easy to see that value. Whereas like with tempura, I might not care. Like I might, yeah. if, if I know you're going to get you know, essentially 2.5. It's not getting, by passing it to the next person after me, it's not giving them five points. It's giving them 2.5 points. Um, And if I'm like not worried about that person or think I'm slightly ahead of them, I might, for instance, just take the salmon nigiri for a solid two points and and give up a little bit of value because I'm, you know, uh, competing with the whole table in a multiplayer game. And this game's not recommended at two players. Um, so, <laughs> so I, at least I think to me, I wouldn't recommend it to players. So it's like, oh, it's never going to be just like when I'm playing this game, it's never just going to be zero sum in that yeah. manner. Um, so yeah, so it's it's hard to say like, I'm going to hate draft somebody's tempura, but to hate draft somebody's Sashimi, it totally can be worth it because 10 yeah. points is like, it might be 25% of the points you get in this game with like a winning score of 40. <laughs> Totally. Yeah. Sashimi is such an interesting card set, Jake, because I think a lot of the exciting moments come from it. Um, And it's it. But it also for me, some of the frustrating moments come from it because of the 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 ability to say this is the right decision for me, given the seat that I'm in and have people just throw a spanner in it um, by people just hate drafting one card. And that's just the game of Sushi Go. That's just drafting. That's drafting games. Um, But it is really fun when you that's you open a hand, no sashimi, or there's two sashimi in it. You don't take it. You take a squid nigiri. You get past a hand. There's two sashimi in it. You end up not taking it. You take something else. The third hand, you get past sashimi, and no one else has played the other sashimis yet. You're over the moon, right? You're definitely getting back at least one of those sashimis, probably at least two of them. You slap down the sashimi, and you know you're you're going to be good. And I think that's that's a fun moment that allows for more planning than you t- would typically have in a game that sort of says this card is worth two points, this card is worth one point, right? Like that's interesting, mm-hmm. and that's it where the creates- memory kicks yep. in that you were talking about before. Like exactly, knowing, like there's still like sashimi out there, yeah, uh, to potentially come back to me. Totally, yeah, yeah, and I think also like the thing about sashimi that is important for like learning how drafting games work is. Mm that not only do you want to signal to your opponent, but you want to follow their signals. So if the person that's passing you is ahead of you on sashimi, right? Like you don't want to take sashimi. sashimi. Yeah. Yeah. Which is, which is like a, you know, that, that's probably pretty obvious to most people who have played drafting games before, because they're going to have every opportunity to take the sashimi out of the hand before it would come to you. Um, But I think it's like, a really kind of like easy to understand, like intuitive way for somebody to kind of grok how signaling works in drafting games. Yeah. I think that Sashimi is really interesting because I'm, 
in terms of pick order, it's pick one. I'm a little bit less incentivized to just, I'm going to YOLO pick sashimi. I don't love doing that. But if pick two, if the person uh, that I'm drafting ahead of played down a sashimi, all of a sudden it looks really great, especially if I get past one sashimi. I'm generally pretty happy to be in that seat. Because if two of us have already gone into sashimi, the rest of the table is pretty disincentivized from going into it. And I know that other sashimis are going to get passed back to me. It's just, yeah. I think signaling in Sushi Go is one of the most fun aspects of it in terms of the decisions that are there. And just you get to put the puzzle of a round of cards together as it unfolds by looking around the table. And that feels interactive in a way that sometimes tableau building game, simple card games don't quite feel as interactive because of the interdependence of I need cards to to get these to pay off in a real way. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Can we do dumplings? Dumplings. The the key to dumplings is those first four letters. Dump. You don't you don't <laughs> yeah. want dumplings. I was going to say like, <laughs> are these just like the worst? I think so. They're t- in my mind, dumplings are totally a trap. And I know someone listening to this podcast is saying, "But guys, if you get five dumplings, they're each worth three points, and that's incredible value." And you know, you're right. If you get five dumplings, for sure. But to really make it worth it, you kind of have to get three. And then it's, okay, here's how dumplings work. I did a bad job, Jake. Uh, For one dumpling, you get one point. For two dumplings, you get three points. For three dumplings, you get six points. For four dumplings, you get 10. And for five or more, you get 15. So it's triangular scoring going up. To make dumplings worth it, you have to get three or more dumplings. And to get three or more dumplings, there's probably better things you could have been doing. Yeah, I would say like getting three is still kind of not worth it. Like, yeah. right. It, it you'd still rather feels have like you'd rather three other cards. Three Sam and Nagiri for sure. Yeah. Right. Um, and I think like this, the way it scores, like it looks better than it actually is when you reduce it to like the value per card. Yeah. Right. Where you think like, oh, like if I, if I get three, then the next one I pick up is worth like four points. It's like kind of yes, but like you're still only getting like, just over two points per card or whatever and then five you're getting three points per card but i've literally never seen anyone collect five dumplings in any of my games on and i played a this a lot on board game arena which is also just i'll just say now one of the huge highlights for this is like you can play a live game of this on board game arena in like literally five minutes or less yeah yeah you know they just it's such a such a short and it's fun a game that like you can really fly through this and so i played a bunch of games and i don't think i've ever seen five dumplings collected i've i've definitely seen it but it's really rare and i think that one thing about dumplings is if you're getting to five dumplings it's coming at the expense of pursuing points and other things like maki or picking up puddings later than you might in a round and i think that those things really add up um it there's times where you're you're supposed to be taking dumplings and you just have to accept that you you're in the dumpling game and that's how it's going to be but I, I, it's it's a tough bone to swallow when you're like maybe okay. and maybe this is like more better in a two-player game right where you're dealing 10 cards to each player maybe so there's just and you know you're getting half of them so if there's like a bunch of dumpling you know if there's like yeah. seven dumplings in the game or something i don't know I haven't played the game at two players, so I should probably stop saying. <laughs> so I have a little bit. There's two different ways to play. There's one where uh, there's no randomness. All the cards are just dealt at the start. And there's another where the hands grow a little bit over the course of the round, which I vastly, vastly prefer. Um, even though you have, you can't make as informed decisions, you can make much more interesting decisions when you have that little bit of uncertainty. And it's not just about who gets ahead in one thing. Um Sushi Go at three is vastly superior to two, though. But if you're going to play it at two, play with that variant. Um, the other thing about dumplings, Jake, is the reason why you so rarely see five is in later rounds, people are really incentivized to take them because one point is better than nothing. And if mm-hmm. you're going to exactly if you have a hand of egg nigiri, which are one point or dumplings, you're taking the dumpling because you're taking the potential for more points from someone else. And it comes at no expense to you if right. that's your choice. So. It's just tough to put together. It might be interesting, like if one dumpling was zero or negative mm. one or something like that. They get a lot better. Yeah. Then it would, I think it would be better because of that. And you're exactly right. You know, yeah. like I, I find myself often ending up with one or two dumplings in my hand and not because I've 
gone for many and failed just because they're like kind of the thing that's worth points that's left at the end. Sure. Or maybe you fell out of the Maki race and you're like, okay, maybe I can pick up two dumplings in my final two picks or something and I'll get 1.5 points for each. That's fine. Yeah. Okay. All right. The bread and butter. Nigiri. So these are, yeah, the most straightforward in the game where you've got uh, the egg Nigiri worth one point, the salmon Nigiri worth two points, and the three Nigiri worth three points, and the wasabi, which makes it so the next nigiri that you draft in that round is triple tripled we said the wrong thing earlier i think i specifically did that's why i was like if you get a wasabi and then a salmon nigiri it's great because you're really turning one salmon nigiri into two squid nigiris because you get three points six points for both i love these cards exactly so yeah so it's just like the the wasabi is so great early on in the round um because i mean like you said you want to try and get two points per card Three points is like amazing. And if you take the wasabi with your first or second pick, like you're almost guaranteed to be getting the three points per card uh, and and possibly 4.5, which is just like way higher than anything else you can do. One thing about drafting games is they're typically all about flexibility, right? And staying open, not forcing yourself down a path where if the randomness of of the round or the decisions around you go in a certain direction, you can end up going the wrong way. And the great thing about Wasabi is is that it keeps you flexible. You're Like Jake said, you're almost always going to get past the Salmon Nigiri at some point. And if you don't, and you just end up putting an egg on it, an egg Nigiri for one point, it turns into three points or 1.5 per card. It's not great. You don't feel wonderful. But there's worse things. You can almost always have this card not be worth zero. I have a slight issue with the Wasabi, which is where I think like the outcomes of it are like so great, right? Like the impact of getting nine points off two cards is so high. And it's when that happens, it's like there's no way you can like, there's no skill to it. And I think like often the game kind of can can hinge on that right like i take wasabi i get past the squid nigiri like i'm just getting a boost that's not you know nobody else can like catch up besides taking great risk you know even getting three sashimi is still not even really that close to the value i'm getting off of no it's 3.3 to 4.5 it's like a whole yeah yeah yeah, it's like not that close. And you have to take such a big risk. So I find like the best way to play this game, like if you can luck into the nine point uh, wasabi early on, then you can sort of just play the like conservative game, let other people take risk and yeah. still wind up like out in front. So I feel like it's good in the sense of like, yay, this is like a gateway game anybody can win it could be your first time playing the game and you can win because you can just like hit this crazy combo but also it's just like i don't know like the impact of it is potentially too great for me and i think that's why i feel like the second turn in this game is like so crazy pivotal a lot because that Mm. combo is just so impactful but okay this is I'm t- I'm gonna do a, uh, a a reading into Jake's soul for all of you. Turn one, you open a squid nigiri and a wasabi. You're playing the squid nigiri. Yeah, yeah. You have yeah, to take, the, have squid to take the squid nigiri. Yeah, because because everybody should do that. Exactly, and the randomness comes in. It really is when it comes. You get the combo because of clumping, right? When someone is f- typically someone's forced to pass you a squid nigiri because they open two, you're in the right. seat directly behind them. You didn't open it. You play down a wasabi because the rest of the hand is not great. It's, you know, maki rolls and chopsticks, stuff you want to be taking later in the round. Um, so it doesn't feel earned always, I guess. Or, is the yeah, or somebody made a mistake. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right, somewhat, like, right. Or they pick sashimi or something, which is still probably a mistake. In yeah. a situation where they could have taken the Squidigiri. Very like few scenarios would you take a sashimi first? Like maybe you're like, I'm definitely behind and like the so I'm just going like mat most points per card possible for this whole round. And then I guess like you theoretically could do that. But still, like you're getting at best three point three over three. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Or maybe if you open four. Yeah. 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 So anyway. 
Um, but the, the good thing about it too is like it makes it so you can like there can be big comebacks in this game. Yeah, like hitting that definitely. is so big that like if you get it in the third round, like I had a game where I literally scored three points in the first round. Yeah, and I scored like twenty six points or something wow. in the third round, and I, I ended up not winning the game, but I, I was like two points short or yeah, something. That's, it's super. And it exciting. started by like hitting that combo, and I was like, it, and it was like literally came down to. I think somebody like cut me off of sashimi with like a hate draft, and then, oh. but they ended up winning the game. So it's like smart. They like made yeah. the right play, but like they realized like holy cow, like this person is like actually a threat actually to win it. the game at this point. Yeah. yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, chopsticks. We've talked about these a little bit. Chopsticks are cards that say uh, they never score any points, but if you have a chopstick, you can put the chopstick back in the hand and take two cards instead of one. Yeah. So I think chopsticks are like one of two cards that add fuzziness, yeah. you know, to the game. Like we're everything we've sort of been saying about, like especially with the the sashimi and and like the signaling your opponents and stuff. Like you're like, okay, nobody's been taking the sashimi, so like I take this one now and these other two will get back to me and so he's like bam chopsticks i'm just taking both out of this pack right it can like really throw off your calculation yeah and i think because of that it's also a card that's super powerful to take early um not only because of the ability to take like two cards out of a pack but because it can like throw off the math for other people and, and sort of give you better information than everyone else Tempura gets a lot better when you're picking two of them at the same time. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. true. Like, but even still, I think like often you can do better. Sure. I also like though that the they help you. The flexibility is not just in getting uh, like you were saying. If there's if you know there's clumping in a certain set of cards, then chopsticks get even better, right? If there's two, three Makis in one hand. It can be kind of crappy to have to draft that. But if you know that and no one's taken it, saving your chopsticks for a hand that's going to come back around that has two can make those picks really efficient because you're denying everyone else them. I think that it, it plays chopsticks are really smart as a design because it helps smooth what can feel like a flaw or bumpiness in the system, which is just the randomness clumping things together in a way that forces decisions in a way that doesn't feel great. So it's just like a perfect design in my mind. And it's interactive. Yeah. It's fun. Yeah. It, it changes the decision space. Like your decision is always going to be like what one card to take. And all of a sudden yeah. with, when you have chopsticks out, your the decision space changes completely and becomes a lot more fun and interesting yeah. because your, your decision is now like what two cards do I take or do I take one and just keep my chopsticks, which I, which I think can also be like, like there's some, there's power to just having chopsticks out. Yeah. Uh, so a lot, a lot of times, even if there's two cards, it might be a valuable choice not to expend them. That if you take them in the first pick, to not expend them in that second pick, uh, because you there you they might get two cards, good cards again in the third pick, right? Yeah. Uh, so kind of like when to leverage them, and and is a fun choice too. So I, I really love these cards. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Okay, Maki being the next one. Maki are the the rolls where they come in diff- three different versions. You might have one roll printed on a card, two rolls printed on a card, or three rolls printed on the card. The player who collects the most in a round gets six points, and the player who collects the second most in a round gets three points. So there's lots of potential variability in how much these are worth. If if there's a lot of Maki cards that come out, uh, each individual card might only be worth one point to the person who wins it, and none to the person who doesn't get it at all. Uh, but if very few come out and you're able to win off two cards, then each of those cards could be getting you three points each, which is is good. These are later round cards, though. You're typically not taking these too early on. Um, and I think it's interesting how they create these timing based decisions of knowing when is it the right time to to make a move and signal that you're going Maki. Yeah, I and I haven't actually I don't think I've seen this, but I did say like, 4.5 points per card is the best you could possibly do. It could actually be six. Like sure. if, you, if you're able one to Maki. get get one Maki and win, um, which is unlikely, but but certainly possible. possible. Yeah. But yeah, I think like Maki is the thing more than anything else that adds tension to the end of the game yeah. uh, and sort of like or the end of the round, like the drama. I feel like a lot of times uh, at the end of the round, pending on like what happens, like what I'm dealt. And, it's, and also at the 
at the end of the round is like when I've like am the most lost about what cards are available left. Like it's a lot of times like a genuine surprise to me what I'm getting handed in the last pick or the last two picks. And I find like a lot of times one or two point or there could definitely be uh, three point swings or more based on like I like I, I'm tied with somebody for second place with four Maki rolls. Like I'm really hoping I just get like the single one or then or they do at the end. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, so there, that that kind of does insert drama to the end, as you would more typically find in a waning decision space game. I think there can also be interesting decisions around knowing when not to take Maki because you know they're going to be worthless to you just because you're so far behind. Like sometimes the game. Some, yeah. Like you have to be principled sometimes and just not get in the game at all because it's not a winning game for you, which I like. A card that's not like this is Pudding. Uh, pudding is really interesting. Uh, there are 10 Pudding cards in the game, so it's a very limited set. And the player who has the most Pudding at the end of the game gets six points, and the player who has the least Pudding at the end of the game gets negative three points. I find Pudding to be really, really important in terms of winning Sushi Go. I, I was going to say the same thing. And like... Everything to me about this game is like really clear in in the points per card, the value per card department, like except for pudding. Pudding. Yeah. It gets really fuzzy to me because like when you think about it, uh, like to win the most pudding, a lot of times it requires three or even four pudding, yep. I find, which is like, okay, so I have four of them and I'm getting six points is really like not that great of a value where somebody else could be just playing one to to get zero points. But playing this game so much, like I find myself picking them earlier and earlier and prioritizing them more and more. And it just feels like a disproportionate number of games I play, the person who wins the pudding competition wins the game. Wins the game, yeah. I found that too. And I think that a big part... <laughs> It's so interesting because having the least puddings doesn't feel... Is it negative three or is negative it... Negative six. It's yeah. negative six, not negative three. Yeah, it's, it's negative, negative six. three points. if you split it. If you split it, that's right. So that's why it's so big. It's very hard to win Sushi Go getting negative six points at the end. And there's definitely times when you can do it. Um, but I find too, Jake, taking puddings in round one can be really, really effective because you totally. get that initiative of just being slightly ahead in a way that it forces other people not only to take puddings to try to not have the least but take them probably earlier than they should be right like yes. i'm happy to take puddings in the middle of a round or the end but when i find myself in a position where it's like okay my first pick in round number three i have to take a pudding otherwise i'm going to be the last for sure that's just a lot of potential lost value that feels bad we've talked about tempo on this podcast before uh, and it's kind of like a tempo gate thing too, where it's like yeah. if I if I have a if I'm too putting clear of the next best competitor, I don't really have to prioritize putting until somebody gets one more, right? Yeah. And then I want to think about taking them again. Uh, and it's it's hard to scoop, you know, it's hard to close a gap when somebody gets initiative in a game like this, totally. especially when that initiative and only the case with putting goes over the course of the whole game, right? These yeah. set aside uh, and you collect them throughout each round so your advantage in putting maintains over the course of the game yeah. I, I totally agree with you uh and and i find you know like for example that three point round i got was largely because i took a bunch of pudding right yeah, yeah. and the reason i was able to score so many points at the end is because everybody else was had to take puddings they weren't yeah. able to they without being able to catch me which made it so i could just suck up all these high value cards totally i think pudding is the most important card in sushi go and one of the most fun cards in sushi go it's like the glue of the whole design and it what takes the game from being a, a good approachable game to being an awesome interesting smart game because yeah. of that that fuzziness it's just and it's interactive it's just oh it's pudding is amazing maki's like maki's good and i'm glad it's there but pudding is just so so interesting Totally. And I mean, like all of this to say, like, it's so amazing to me that uh, this was uh, PWH's first game. And like, you can really see the design chops in this, mm. like just the choice of these six cards. And, and we can talk really briefly about Sushi Go Party if we want. Yeah. Um, but like, I really think in my plays, like 
I wouldn't have it any other way. Like I think these six cards create the most interesting uh, and and dynamic set of cards to play with that like if you could only pick six to play with i think i'm going with the base game so it's just you know how well everything works together to create this like super simple but a game that really does allow rich dynamic gameplay you know i've been impressed with the staying power like i don't find myself it's not sushi is not my favorite game but it's not a game i'm like bored of after playing all this time uh, to prepare for this episode it's definitely a game i'll continue to play Totally. I think that I have to correct you slightly because it's not his first game. What? Um, yeah. Archaeology, the card game came out in 2007. And wow. I think he had a few self-published things before that. But I completely agree with everything. Paul you said, told Jake. me that. Dude, we Paul's, need a new president. Paul betrayed you. We yeah. need a new president. Of the Demoted to vice. Vice president. <laughs> That's just uh, maybe with Sushi Go Party. I agree, Jake. I, I like base Sushi Go so, so much. And I think part of that is because... When Sushi Go Party, for people who don't know, is this added version of Sushi Go that gives you a bunch of different cards. So every game, you use a random set of uh, appetizers and just different elements that you mix together. So the card pool is different every time, which is cool, but it makes the game more about knowing how that card pool might work together than it does, I think, about... It shifts the game away from some of the clarity. Yeah, it shifts to like the conversation about like what is the game. It's yeah. like, yeah. Uh, and also, I feel like a lot of the cards in Party, as you would kind of probably want for an expansion, are just like wilder and more... They're zany. Chaotic. Um, and I feel like, I don't know that I personally, just because of who I am as a gamer, like, I don't want more chaos in my like already like random and chaotic drafting game. Yeah. Um, but I think for a, lot, for a lot of people, they do like that. And that's obviously no knock on them. Okay, what are your two or three favorite... Uh, one, I want to know your two or three favorite cards in Base Sushi Go and your two or three favorite cards in Party. And then maybe we can put a put a nigiri on the rice of this episode. Okay, so I think my favorite cards would be the basic nigiris mm-hmm. because I think like it's just so important to have something that's just like the straight man, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. It's like somebody has to be in there to play it straight so that everything else has like this solid foundation to bounce off of. Yeah. Um, so I love that inclusion of just like this super straightforward, easy to understand. And then my other favorite is the chopsticks. Just, I nice. love how like those car, that card, like by itself completely changes the decision space to something else. And as somebody, uh, you know, who co-created the decision space podcast, like that kind of effect is going to appeal to totally. me quite a bit. For me, um, oh, I'll do yeah. my base and then we can, for me in base, I said puddings. I still really feel puddings. Um, and then I think I, I like sashimi. I've complained about it some, but I think it's, it makes for exciting moments. And if you finish a sashimi set in your final pick or your second to last pick, it feels great. So I, I like yeah. those moments. I don't know what my favorite are in party. I haven't played it nearly as much. Yeah. I do. I do like the, uh, the fruit, which is like a replacement for pudding. And that makes it like, so instead of like a single set collection, you're like actually collecting like different sets within that yeah end game scoring thing i actually like am in the process of playing asynchronously with that for the first time so it's like a very limited experience with it but i so far feel like okay this is pretty neat addition to the game uh that doesn't seem to change it up too too much um i and and i think i think the other one i like is uh I don't know what the card is called, but it's the one that gives you points equal to your biggest set. Oh, I don't know. What is that one? That one is cool. Yeah. Is that like a that... box or something? Might be. I don't know. I don't know. Let's find out. Yeah. Well, you find out. I really like Eel. Eel is a card that gives you negative three points for one or seven points for two or more. Uh, so that's just really cool. That's what we were talking about, about maybe disincentivizing hate drafting a little bit. Um, I think it's fun to have that higher value that you can chase. And I like, Jake was talking about the zaniness of some of the cards. Um, Miso Soup is a card that says that it's worth three points, but you have to discard it if any other players played Miso Soup this round. So knowing when to play Miso Soup ends up being a donkey space game of you sort of, you want to wait a little bit because you don't want to be taking, you don't want to take it if other people are taking it early, but then maybe you don't want to take it later because maybe you should be taking it early because maybe other people are going to wait to take them. So 
it's fun. I like it. If I'm playing Sushi Go Party, why not turn the zany, the zaniness up? I've had games though, Jake, where I picked this card like three times in a row, and all three times have Fail. lost. And it's just like, oh my gosh, what am I doing? Like, yeah, <laughs> yeah. The the card I was thinking about is called T. So T. it's one point per, per card in your biggest set of a single color at the end of a round. And I think this is a really smart design choice because it like increases the value of things that are typically undervalued and people might not be taking as much like tempura and dumpling yeah right yep totally yeah uh so i think i think that works really well i think eel is also pretty chaotic though no definitely <laughs> just yeah yeah okay yeah i think i just like scoring seven off two cards <laughs> that's yeah, yeah that's pretty that's cool cool all right i think that's it for this week's episode of decision space brendan thank you as always for joining Next week, we'll be getting into the decisions in Downforce by Restoration Games. You can support our show on Patreon. That's You can find that at decisionspacepodcast.com slash Patreon or patreon.com slash decisionspace. As always, you can join our Discord. The link is in the description of this podcast. And find us on Twitter and on BoardGameGeek. Just search for Decision Space. Thank you, as always, to Hembry for their hit song, Reach Out, which we use as our intro and outro music. And we'll see y'all next week. Bye, y'all.